innovation is in our veins. Soon the whole world will know our names. Sharing our knowledge and freedom reign. We give for the people, you know it's our way. Setting foundations is part of the dream. It doesn't matter if you're new to the game. Listen up now, cause we all gon' say, Ugh. Elevate, 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 higher. Elevate, 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 higher. We gon' rise up. Shine. Work through adversity, stay on the grind. Elevate, elevate, this is our time. Elevate, elevate. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, everyone. We have a good one here planned for y'all. The one that y'all have been waiting for. We're excited to bring it to you. You know, it's me, it's your boy Josh. Dalton. We're and back we, together. We are back together, touching yeah. each other. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, we have an amazing guest on with us. We have Elizabeth Smith McCrossan. Many lover. Many, maybe not so much at this point, but we are excited to have her on. We really, you know, we, we saw what happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the blockades and we really wanted to bring her on to tell her side of the story and what she's seen and what she's experienced. Um, we're going to get into all the juicy stuff, don't you worry. But first we want to kind of get into more. So who is Elizabeth is all about and where, how she got into politics and we're going to get into all that soon and very quickly. But before we do that, please subscribe. Share it on your socials. Share with your friends. Do all the things, please. It means so much to us and it means the world because through it, we can bring on amazing guests and get the answers and insights that you want. So first, Elizabeth, give a kind of two minute rundown of who you are, what you're about. Well, first of all, thanks for having me today. It's great to, uh, it's great to be here with you. Um, Who am I? I'm, I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm a registered nurse. I'm a farmer's daughter. I grew up in Cumberland County on a, on a dairy farm. My mom passed away when I was only five years old. She had melanoma. She was only 28 years old. So I was the youngest of three children. And that kind of helped to form just who I am, really, to be honest. I, I grew up uh, always wanting to be a, a nurse and be one of those nurses uh, that took care of my mom. Because I don't really have any memories of her other than sort of the nurses dressed in white So I did that. I studied nursing at Dalhousie and then went on and opened uh, three businesses, all health related. And I guess I'm in this job that I am today because I just keep seeing where things can be done better. I keep uh, wanting things to be done better. And my husband and I went to the States for a couple of years back from 95 to 97. And I wouldn't want necessarily to have a privatized system because I saw people there that needed healthcare and, and couldn't access it because they didn't have the money. But I also see where we could be much more efficient here in Canada and here in Nova Scotia. Uh, We can do a much better job with what we have. So that's what sort of drove me to ask people to uh, check an X by my name on the ballot and see if I could help change some legislation and policy to uh, make a difference specifically in the areas of healthcare, but I'm also very passionate about our economy and just people. I love people and I want people to be able to live their best life. I'd love to, my goal would be that every person can be the best person that they can be. And government has a role to make sure that there's proper infrastructure and services in place to support people. So that's it in a nutshell. Perfect. And we love that. We love that you kind of, kind of you hit on almost everything. Um, and so what was it like for you uh, kind of early on? You know, why did you feel you need to go to the States to, you know, um, you know, essentially? Yeah. Why did you go to the States? That's a great question. It was healthcare. My my husband's a family physician and I'm a registered nurse. 
we were we spent a year in Toronto uh, where he finished his residency and then his uh, his first practice was in Liverpool Nova Scotia beautiful town on the south shore of Nova Scotia and uh, John Savage was the premier of Nova Scotia at the time and he cut the physician's wages by uh, around 14 percent and both my husband and I had we just had hundreds of thousand dollars of debt it, we were drowning in debt and we uh, really were overwhelmed and every day we were getting calls from recruiters from the states uh, trying to entice us to go and eventually one of those days I picked up the phone and talked to someone from Wisconsin and then uh, started talking to other ones we ended up going to probably three or four different places between Minnesota and Wisconsin and just uh made a decision to go we went specifically with a goal to pay off our student loan debt and we thought we could do it in five years and then our plan was to return to Nova Scotia to raise our family and we lived very frugally and we paid it off in 21 months wow now part of it was because of the currency mm, currency oh, yeah. the Canadian currency was really poor at the time so every dollar we sent back on our debt was like a dollar 45. So that, wow. that really helped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, and then we came right back. As soon as our debt was paid, we, we came back. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, that's, that's a cool adventure. Obviously, I know that uh, y'all are avid Green Bay Packers fans, and that makes a lot of sense <laughs> why that's the case. <laughs> um, how much cheese is, no, I'm not going to go down that path. Um, but, uh, so, you know, when you came back, obviously you talked about, um, businesses that are health related uh what kind of were those businesses and you know and why specifically in the health space so when we came back um nova scotia was still had a real shortage of family doctors and from sort of we well in nova scotia we refer to, refer to it as the savage days so we came back and we had two more children so now we have four children and my husband was working in an environment where he didn't have enough colleagues and through helping him over the years and learning a lot in the states um, my first business was called east coast holistic health and it was it was a business that offered turnkey physician management services and so i i really started it more as a social enterprise to be honest as a way to try to attract new physicians to our community and so within six months i had five and then within four years, we brought in another 11. So it worked. It worked. So I started that in 1999. And then if you're, if you are entrepreneurial or if you, if, if other, you know, others entrepreneurs get bored. So <laughs> they start things, they have ideas and then they plant the seed and watch it grow. And then they want to plant another seed and watch it grow. So that's kind of what I did. My 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 physician services business was well um, i think at my peak i had like 12 clients 12 physicians that came here to to amherst and then i started um amherst medical aesthetics which was i bought laser equipment and offered skincare um, services and my my nursing um my philosophy is more of a holistic approach so i love when you can offer a whole suite, I guess, of, of services to people. So we had a naturopathic physician, massage therapy. Uh, we had registered nurses doing a lot of education and well women clinics. Um, 
what else did I have? Uh, nutrition. We had a uh, nutrition counselor. We had therapists doing um, counseling. So, so yeah. So right beside my my health clinic, I had this Amherst Medical Aesthetics, and I started that in 2006. And then in 2009, again, I got a little bored, so I sold everything to the docs for the health clinic. And then I took Amherst Medical Aesthetics and I moved it physically to a new location downtown and opened Demera Spa and Wellness Center. And it was basically all of the holistic services, uh, including a well woman clinic, which I ran out of. So you could go to this spa and you could have a pap smear or a pedicure. It was awesome. Interesting. <laughs> I know. Wow. I thought you guys would really appreciate that. No, I do. We really did appreciate that. Mac, did you appreciate that? <laughs> okay. We love that. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so I think all the, what I find interesting. So obviously, you know, you, you've had quite the adventurous life at this point. You've tried a lot of different things. No one can accuse you of not trying things. Um, so you did the business and what did you have that moment? Cause I know how I feel as someone who, who runs his own business. We're running a podcast together. I love business. I love marketing. I love design. I love all that stuff. But I, I, between you and me, Elizabeth, I hate government. And is that, did you find that was kind of the, the tension you felt is that you realized that if businesses can be run efficiently, why can't government be run efficiently? Did you run into that at all? Absolutely. I ran into that, um, in all kinds of different facets. So I, I went on and did open two more businesses. I bought a building and just as an example, I had a, a, a building that I put a, a local food store in Manasseh local food. You probably remember that. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting a visit from the fire inspector because the Rotary Club wanted to host a Christmas party there. So in order to get a liquor license, you had to have this fire inspector come. Now, keep in mind, the building passed all fire codes when it was constructed. And he came in and he found 11 violations. Like, I don't even know what they were. They were nothing. But the 11th one was significant. And it was... He thought, keep in mind, my building was 80 years old. He thought that I needed to put um, fireproof gyprock in the basement of my building. So this is an 80-year-old building that has a sump pump that's wet all the time. The floors are about six inches thick because when they built buildings back then, that's what they were. And all to get a $50 liquor license for this Rotary Club Christmas party. And it was going to, it would have cost me $25,000. Wow. Anyway, wow. needless to say, oh, I said, I don't need a liquor license. Thank you very much. I'm not doing it. Mm. And he, he went on uh, a month later to send me a letter to say that he actually changed the code of my building to a hazardous something building so that then I had to do what he said. It was all about ego and power yeah. is my point. Oh, it had yeah. nothing to do with common sense or what was realistic. So I appealed it and I won, but it was really stressful and it was needless. It was needless as a business owner. Like, you know, as a business owner, you're trying to make a profit so you can pay your employees and you can survive and keep going. And in order to do that, you have to grow your revenue and you have to keep your expenses under control. So, so yeah, I think most of my frustration 
was more from the healthcare benefit because I really have a hard time seeing people suffer needlessly. And again, going back to, you know, growing up and my losing my mom at such a young age, I, I really feel like people, when people are sick and they need healthcare, they should be able to access it timely. And yeah. when you know, it doesn't have, when you know, something doesn't have to be done poorly, you know, when you know it can be done better, you want to see it done better. So that's really probably what drove me um, to put my name on the ballot. Cause I, I really believe completely that we could have a world-class healthcare system here in Nova Scotia completely. Totally. Oh, and, I, and I think I really appreciate those answers and kind of your perspective and viewpoint of why you did and, and went, uh, went to office. So I kind of want, you know, as we shift um, gears a little bit to the amazing day that was, I think it was June 23rd on Wednesday um, all the fun that came with that. And we, uh, I remember, uh, you know, I'll kind of give a brief rundown of what happened, at least from what we saw, and then we'll kind of share what we went through and then we'll, we'll open it up and we'll have a fun conversation about it. But, uh, so for those who are listening to those who don't know what happened, so essentially what happened is, uh, there was an announcement made, there's an expectation of an announcement to be made that the border was going to open between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And then um, the premier, Ian Rankin, got up there and actually said, psych, we're actually going to hold off on opening up the border for now, and we're going to keep opening up things within the province still and keep people out. And there were some, mainly the border uh, communities weren't very happy about this because they were anticipating the border to be open, and it, it wasn't. And they were not happy, and they felt like they kind of were slighted um, over the course of the pandemic, and they felt like they weren't being led um, uh, truthfully. And so they were expecting that, expecting you know, to see their families just on the other side of the border, weren't able to do that. And so there's like, you know, enough's enough. And, you know, a protest had started to, to block the highway. It was, you know, that was kind of the, essentially what happened. Um, obviously everyone has their own take and perspective of what happened that day. Um, and the media will say one thing. And I know for myself, when I saw the blockades and all the stuff that was going on, we had a podcast that night and we, uh, we covered it. It was, um, we, from our perspective, uh, we know it was a very serious situation yeah. um, to those who are directly involved. Uh, for myself, I was like, that's my, that's my homie Elizabeth, you know, and, and doing her thing out there. And so from your perspective, Elizabeth, what happened that day, and uh, and why did you why did you feel a need to kind of um, s start a, a protest in this regard and, uh, and and make a make something happen? So I don't know how much time you have. Can I go back back in time? A Please little bit? take all the time you need. So let me just give a little bit of back backstory. So you're right. We we are here in a border community uh, here in Cumberland. We border. We border New Brunswick, Westmoreland County. And anyone that's listening that lives in Halifax, I want you to imagine that the border is between Halifax and Dartmouth, okay? Let's say the harbor is the border. And I want you to imagine that while in Cape Breton and in, in Yarmouth, there's COVID and there's outbreaks, but in Halifax, Dartmouth, where you are, there's no COVID. And now I want you to transplant that and put that up here in Cumberland and Westmoreland County, New Brunswick. So that was the scenario essentially for almost the entire pandemic. Cumberland had zero cases of COVID until March. So a whole year we went with no COVID. 
and very, very few cases in Westmoreland County, which is our neighbor. So similar to Halifax Dartmouth, we share healthcare services. So people in the Southern New Brunswick would come to Amherst for surgery, ENT, obstetrics, so deliver babies. And then people in Amherst go to Moncton for chemotherapy treatments, orthopedics, and urology. So we're, we're completely integrated our healthcare system. In fact, my family doctor is five minutes across the border in Sackville. So healthcare is uh, significant. <clears throat> During the pandemic, anyone from Nova Scotia was, all their healthcare services were canceled in, in, in New Brunswick. And many of the people in New Brunswick were denied ability to come to Amherst as well. So there was a lot of uh, frustration. So I'll give you, I'll just give you an example. You know, I, I'd have a woman call me one day and say, Elizabeth, I've, I've been newly diagnosed with cancer. My family doctor sent me to Moncton. I was supposed to have an appointment next week, but now I can't go. So now I have to wait eight weeks to see an oncologist in Halifax. And instead of traveling 40 minutes every day to get my chemo and radiation, I have to go and actually live in Halifax because it's a four hour trip and I can't go back and forth every day. So now I have to live down there, find a place to stay and financially. So these are the kinds of scenarios that I'm dealing with every single day. Keeping in mind, there's no COVID in our community, in our entire county and very little neighboring county, okay? Mm -hmm. I would have a mother, 60-year-old mother, whose 40-year-old daughter died from cancer, funerals 40 minutes away. She wasn't allowed to go to her own daughter's funeral, and there was no COVID in our communities. I had a, a woman, she had been married 72 years. 72 years, mm. imagine that. Yeah. And wasn't allowed to go to her own husband's funeral. Uh because she had lived in a nursing home. So these are the kinds of, there's a lot of scenarios. So I would say healthcare uh, and then life-threatening family situations were created a lot of stress in the lives of the people here for, for 15 months. So it was like kind of, I'm gonna compare it to like kind of like a pressure cooker. And then layered on top of that was our business community. So when you come, when you enter Nova Scotia, there's three land entrances. There's the Trans-Canada Highway, there's a, a dirt road called Mount Watley, and then there's the Tidnish entrance, which a lot of people take when they go to PEI. Almost the entire pandemic, only one entrance had, we called them our border guards. And so the other two entrances are wide open. The government knew that, but it was a lot of it, uh, the local people felt the border people were there for optics so that the people in the rest of the province felt protected, even though for almost the entire pandemic, no one was denied entry in, into this province of Nova Scotia. A lot of people didn't realize that. So there were conservation officers at the border and, and they were incredible, very professional, but they were essentially Walmart readers. Mm. They welcomed people in. If somebody was from uh, not a local person, they said, make sure you self-isolate. No data was collected and no follow-up was done. Now, that went on almost the entire pandemic. I would have RCMP officers calling me saying, Elizabeth, there's people entering Nova Scotia with full-on COVID symptoms. 
There's people during when COVID, when Ontario and Quebec were having outbreaks, we'd get 60, 70 cars a day from Ontario or Quebec. And, and our border people had no ability, no power to stop them. So that was going on. And then when you come in on Trans-Canada Highway, exit one, you take that and it goes down uh, LaPlante Street into our downtown Amherst. That exit to this day is still closed. Yep. So our entire business community has been, um, you know, we know every every business in has been impacted by COVID, but our businesses are impacted in exponentially because even when um, there's no restrictions, we still couldn't have people enter our through exit one into our town. It's still closed to this day. Mm. So, and then I guess the last point I'll make kind of as a lead up to what happened is similar to Halifax Dartmouth, if you go back to that analogy, um, between 40 and 60% of the customer base for our businesses here in the border community are from Southern New Brunswick. So the entire time that, that the borders have been closed, our businesses here lost more than 50% of their customer base. So when the rest of the province was open and we were technically open, our businesses still couldn't access 50% of their customer base. And um, a lot of people were very, very frustrated by that. And so now let's go to what happened on June 22nd. Okay, so um, I guess one other point I'll make is I, I became very good friends with Megan Mitten. She's the Green Party MLA from Sackville, Westmoreland, New Brunswick, uh, amazing woman. We talked two, three times every week for 15 months. We had asked Premier Higgs and our Premier to form a, a bubble similar to what Northern New Brunswick did with Quebec. There's two communities in Northern New Brunswick. They twinned, they called it. We had been asking since last November for our premiers to do that here between Cumberland and Westmoreland, knowing how integrated we are. And on June 11th, Premier Higgs made an announcement that he was going to welcome Cumberland County to be part of New Brunswick's reopening plan. So everyone was elated. It was like keeping in mind, um, you know, all of the challenges that I've just shared with you. So I called up Premier Rankin on June 11th and said, oh my goodness, we're so happy here. Uh, Premier Higgs is allowing Cumberland County into New Brunswick. And Premier Rankin said, no, that was on June the 11th. And so the people here were very angry on June 11th. And then on June the 15th, Premier Rankin came out and said, well, we're gonna open to the rest of Atlantic Canada on June the 23rd. Hmm. So then everyone's like, okay. So, okay, so now June, June 23rd. Then on June 22nd at two o'clock, a press release was sent out saying, oh, I've changed my mind again. We're going to open up to PEI in Newfoundland, but now we've changed our mind with New Brunswick. And they also shared these, I don't know if you saw them, but just a oh, bureaucratic red tape like mishmash of rules of one vaccine and two vaccine and testing and isolating for three days and seven days. And like, it was just total confusion and total anger. So, so June 22nd at two o'clock when that was released, I got a flood of um, messages through, through all those, my portals from people 
basically saying, we're done. Mm. We're done. And so I thought long and hard because um, there had been a group that had been actually at the Nova Scotia New Brunswick border for the previous eight weeks, every Sunday. And they had shut the, the border down a few times. It didn't make the media, mm. but there was um, a group that had been meeting every Sunday for eight weeks. Um, I hadn't ever gone out and joined them. I, I knew of them, but I didn't really support shutting, blocking the Nova Scotia and Brunswick border because I've been trying to get it open. Mm, right. <laughs> right. So, mm-hmm. um, but that group, as well as many others, contacted me as soon as on June 22nd and said, we're shutting things down. We've had it. So I thought long and hard. Well, not too long, probably 20, 30 minutes. And I decided that I was going to go and join them. Mm. And I know I've been in Halifax when streets have been shut down and the port have been shut down and trucks not been able to go due to different protests, whether it be against forestry or climate change. And so I, I knew that in the past, other MLAs have gone and stood shoulder to shoulder with their constituents in support of what they were protesting. So I made a decision to do that that day and met um, probably about 200 people at exit seven, which is in a place near called Westchester. It's about 35 minutes from the Nova Scotia, New Brunswick border. And I arrived there at about 4.30 on June the 22nd. And I stayed there with our people until probably about nine, nine o'clock, 9.30. And uh, there was RCMP on site. They assured me that it was a legal, legal, peaceful protest that um, emergency vehicles and actually all vehicles were able to be diverted through um, other exits. And any vehicles that were in the lineup that had, um, or at least ones that we were aware of that had children or anybody that had any sort of medical condition, the, the RCMP asked the protesters if they could get through and the protesters did allow them through. So I looked at it as I'm there to support the people. I know what they've been through. And one of my, um, I guess you call him a friend, but also somebody who has a lot of political experience. He came and talked to me. He said, Elizabeth, Premier Rankin. I, so I did try calling Premier Rankin about five or six times. He, he never took the calls. And he, my friend just said, look, he's clearly not going to do anything. And Sid said, why don't you ask the people to go home? And if in exchange, you will travel to the city early in the morning, requesting a meeting with the premier to say, to share the, their concerns. So I took his advice, spoke to the people, the media were all there. They recorded all of it, but they didn't show any of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I gave a little speech, asked people to disperse, to go home for safety and for their safety, for everyone's safety and told them, on their behalf, I would go and request a meeting with the premier and everything was shut down. I went home and got up in the morning, went down and tried to see the premier, but he uh, did refuse. Unfortunately, I stayed there all day and I met several great people. But so that's what happened on Tuesday. Meanwhile, through the night, the group that had been meeting at the border for the last eight weeks they went and set up a blockade. And when I found out about it, 
um, the next morning, <clears throat> our CMP and I had been talking back and forth. I did speak with them over the phone and ask them to please open up the highway. Um, that happened three times throughout the day on Wednesday, but um, keep in mind, they, they were not representing me. They were there <clears throat> on their own accord and, and were not, um, they were making their statement. I think they were mad too, that Premier Rankin was not willing to listen and not willing to hear their concerns. Right. So I'll stop for a minute in case you have any questions to clarify up to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think um, everyone can relate one with, you know, not feeling heard and, and especially when it comes down to things as serious as healthcare and small businesses and, and everything that you've mentioned. I, I totally recognize exactly where you're coming from. So I want to know what were your thoughts uh, when you started to see the border back up? Um, did you feel like what you wrote to do was working or did you sort of feel the impending consequences start to rise up? Uh, what were those emotions like as you were there? So do you mean on Tuesday? Yes, while well, you were present at the border. So I was never at the border. Or, or at the, at, at I guess, the exit seven. Yeah, so I was yeah. at exit yeah. seven. It's about, it about 35 minutes away from the border. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, it never really escalated. It wasn't as, like... It wasn't like what the media showed at the Nova Scotia New Brunswick border because RCMP were there. It was peaceful. Um, traffic was able to be diverted if necessary. Um, the people there, you know, honestly, there was a lot of families. There was grandmothers. There were business owners, um, and they felt empowered. They were they were like, you know, we need to make a stand. Somebody needs to listen to to us because no one was listening they've tried i tried on their behalf and um, so i think they felt empowered as most people do like um, when they do a protest and yeah. and who wants to to go and 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 do something like that i think people were felt desperate people were angry frustrated and i think felt desperate and like i i compared it earlier it really was kind of like a powder keg that had been building, the pressure been building and building. Absolutely. Um, as things started to get, I'll use the word hot, at the actual border, once you had already left, so physically at the border, um, what was, hear, hearing about that, um, obviously it was sort of end of day, so there wasn't a lot going on, you know, downtown or, or with other officials. Um, what was going through your head when you realized this is turning into something a little more, I'll say explosive? Yeah, so I really wasn't aware of all of what was going on because I was sitting down in front of one government place waiting for the premier to, to speak with me on behalf of the people. So uh, I didn't see any of that. Um, I had people calling me throughout the day, you know, asking, is, is the premier seeing you? Um, Dale Palmiter came out, he works for the premier and told me that the premier was refusing to meet with me on behalf of the people and offered me to speak with the minister of health, which I did. And so, so we spoke about, about everything. Um, but I've, the answer to your question is I wasn't really aware, to be honest, of what was happening at the Nova Scotia border. Um, I did get a report from... Uh, New Brunswick's um, premier's office called me, wanted to know if I knew who the protesters were and wanted to know if I knew any of their background. 
because Premier Higgs, you got to give him credit, he called and spoke to the to the people that were leading the protester protest at the Nova Scotia New Brunswick border, which I was pretty you know impressed that he did that. He called them, asked them what they wanted, and they told him. And uh, my understanding, what happened next is Premier King from PEI called a premier's uh, Atlantic Premier's Council meeting. The four premiers met uh, virtually, of course, and it was after their meeting that the RCMP shut things down. So I think personally, you know, I can see what led to this. Premier Rankin could have shut down that border blockade Wednesday. He could have shut that down at nine o'clock. He could have met with me, which I think the people would have, that's what the people wanted on their behalf. uh, At least the people that I were with on Tuesday, but he had the ability to contact RCMP and shut that down on Wednesday and he chose not to. So why did he do that? Yeah. It's a good question to ask. Mm. So I guess my next question then would be, uh, you know, that was essentially the criticism that came out a lot was how could you not know what your constituents were doing? Um, that was the kind of, you know, that was the, the blowback that came back a lot. And what is your response to that? I know you've answered that at various times in the media, but from your, your words specifically to us, what is your answer to, shouldn't you know what your constituents are doing when it comes to like a protest of this magnitude? Yeah. So I, I knew what was happening through people giving me a call, but I never really had the idea because I physically wasn't there and I wasn't watching any video or anything. So, mm-hmm. um, my former leader, Tim Houston, called me probably at around, I'm going to say around four o'clock to say, Elizabeth, there's the media think you're there. They're reporting it as though you're there leading this. And they're recording people that are really against vaccines. And they're painting you to look like you're against vaccines. And that's painting a bad picture on our PC party. So I, of course, I feel terrible about that. You know, I think in Canada, we do live in a democracy where we have rights, individual rights and freedoms, and it is people's individual right if they want to receive a vaccine or not. But personally, as a registered nurse, um, I've given vaccines my whole career for 30 years, and I've given COVID-19 vaccines. So I was concerned that that's how the media were portraying. It was a really good lesson in in media, mm-hmm. because the media, even though they were with me on Tuesday, Global was there, CBC, CTV, they were all there. Global for sure recorded me shutting down the protest on Tuesday and even interviewed me after to ask me why I did that. They never showed any of that footage. Mm. But instead, the footage that they showed on Wednesday afternoon, they correlated it with, with my video to the premier to say, look, enough is enough. And the people, people are going to shut down the highway. So you need to do something. Uh, it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. I, I went there to support them. I wasn't shutting it down. I mean, really, how much power do you think little Elizabeth has from Linden, Nova Scotia? Really? Mm-hmm. I was projecting the frustration and the anger of the people that I represent here. And okay. you know, why do you elect people if they 
are not going to truly represent you. And I know there's people that are angry with me around, because let me tell you, I got some pretty, pretty awful messages. Um, I know that people are angry, but a lot of the, those people don't actually know the whole story. And I will tell you, most of the people that live here, they, they are so proud that finally somebody stood up for them because they feel oppressed. They have felt completely ignored by this government for the last 15 months. And, and they have been, I mean, I've, I've tried letters, phone calls, meetings, and they just refuse. Uh, they've just refused to listen and, and hear the concerns and, and people just, people just had it. I mean, example today, I went, I went to a funeral in uh, Oxford and my husband and I went to Tim Hortons to get lunch. And the woman, we walked in and the manager said, oh, you're not paying for your lunch. She said, uh, I'm paying for your lunch because I want to say thank you for what you did. Mm. So that's the feeling here in our community, um, people had people were fed up and they were just happy that finally somebody represented them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I mean I think that is a, a lot of great points, and I I think um, you know you explaining how you were in support of what they were doing. You weren't necessarily locking down the border, but you were there in support of, and now recognizing that doing something like this can lead to people feeling heard and people feeling. Um, noticed and their businesses being noticed um so i do i i have a question um uh in regards to your your public statement of the 2020 railway blockades um and your public i would say um message that that was unacceptable um so i'm curious how now it was acceptable and you were in support of and you can see how something like that works but back then it was not okay yeah, so I think a great question to always ask is what led us to this moment? Right. And, and you know, even in that situation, uh, when I tweeted that out and, and a lot of people have tried to use that to sort of frame, you know, frame me, um, there was a lot of frustration when I tweeted that out because, uh, you know, things were being held up. And now fast forward to our present day, I can, I can look at the situation and think, Anytime you see a protest where people are so desperate that they're blocking a highway or blocking a pipeline, there's a whole backstory to that. And it's because people have been oppressed, they haven't been listened to, and that's, I think, where the lessons have to come in. And for myself included, to, to stop and to say what really led to, the, to get people to be at the point where they're so angry and they're so desperate to get someone to listen to them yep. that they're in that point that they're and I mean, I never would have dreamed something like this would ever have happened. Like it's unimaginable. And I'm, I'm sure look back, you know, in 10 years would be like, did this, like, did this really happen? Like, did we really have border guards at our border? Yep. Like, unbelievable how even some of them i guess in every workplace you have people that are really professional people that aren't but i had students that literally quit going to school because they were so intimidated and bullied every day going back and forth i had nurses like 40 percent of our hospital staff here at cumberland regional live like 10 minutes away but it's in new brunswick i had nurses being bullied 
like people, businesses that were, did business on either side of the border that maybe for four months, they're allowed to go back and forth every day. And then one day they go and some guy just decides he's going to give them a hard time and refuse them entry. Like uh, it's hard to explain, but the, the frustration of the people that are living in this border community and what they've had to put up with the last 15 months. Um, that's why it led to this. And I think that's anytime you see a situation like that, you have to ask what happened that, that got us to this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you could now looking back, delete that tweet and make it go away. Do you think that's, you now that you have that full understanding of why someone would do that, do you think that's sort of where you are now? Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I think if I was able to turn back, I'd, I'd probably ask the question like, why, why is what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what was interesting to me, um, you know, I think I still stand, I still stand by how I was feeling about it when it all happened. And I was, you know, you know, um, just so that there's complete, um, uh, transparency on this show, you know, yes, Elizabeth, you and I, we do have a personal, you know, um, you know, we know each other personally outside of, you know, this type of setting. So when I saw this was all going down, obviously, you know, I have relationships with your kids and, uh, you know, my parents are friends with you and, and your, your husband, um, I saw it all going down. I had a lot of friends come out to me who did know that I knew you and were obviously very annoyed um, by what was happening. Yeah. And honestly, for me personally, my um, my response to them, and I, st- I still stand by it because I really do stand behind civil disobedience is necessary in our society to really get governments to recognize when they are just being absolute jabronis. And... Yeah. Um, I, I fully support it regardless of, you know, regardless of what the consequences of it were, I still support it because of what you said tonight was what got people to go here and yeah. what, why are they trying to get their voices heard? What's happening? And so I think what, this is just my personal take on it is yeah. I think the reason why people got so annoyed, so frustrated was obviously yeah, a highway was blocked and oh man, we lost all this stuff. Is that the other? But I think the other t- thing too is, and I think it was goes back to your point at the beginning of the show. People are not used to their politicians speaking on behalf of them, and so mm-hmm. the minute a politician actually did that for her constituents, how dare she? Which I thought yeah. was interesting. And, Listen, I have yeah. no regrets. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets, and that's. Um, I feel badly that so many people were inconvenienced on Wednesday, but I stand by, I did not start Wednesday's border blockade. Mm. And my message to the premier on Tuesday was you better, you better stop what you're doing because you're messing with the people up here and they've had it. And, And what you saw was the anger and the frustration of the people. I mean, I don't have that much power to incite that kind of yeah. frustration. <laughs> really, I don't. It's it's. I was just projecting what I had been seeing and hearing and feeling from the people here, and it just blew. Yeah, it yeah. just blew. And and I feel strongly that people deserve to have a voice. Like totally. people deserve to have a voice, and and you know we're going to have an election here in Nova Scotia probably going to be announced on Saturday. And and every one of us that are asking to be elected or reelected, we're going to knock on your door and we're going to say, I want to represent you. I want your support. And, and we're all going to say, 
will, you know, will represent you, will be your voice. But you know what happens as soon as you get elected? You, in this day and age, in 2021, you are expected to be a puppet. That is exactly what happened to me after I was elected in 2017. And I was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean? The people that are running the show are not the elected people. Um, and that's what needs to change. Mm -hmm. And what yeah. we need to get back to grassroots politics where people that are elected truly represent their people. And maybe someone in Sydney, Cape Breton doesn't understand what's happened here at the border. But I'm going to tell you something. If this was happening in Sydney, Cape Breton, or if this was happening at the Canso Causeway, this would have happened months ago. And I'm just saying that because I know many people, many Cape Bretoners, and they're passionate. They're just as passionate as us, if not more. And um, I would expect people, other MLAs, to do what is right for the people that, that represent them, even if other people don't understand. Right. Yep. And this is kind of... I guess this is the more this is a more personal opinion at this point. Um, but like I am publicly, um, unless there's someone I have a personal connection to one of the candidates, I actually will not be voting in this election. Period. Only because um, I'm not really um, not really in support of what kind of one party is doing in terms of what the liberals are doing. I appreciate some of the things they've done. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the issue I currently have is exactly what you just said. I've caught on throughout COVID. Um, that at least in terms of even the conservatives really bother me with is that they are more concerned about pleasing those on the other side of the aisle than they are their own constituents. And that really rubs me the wrong way and they will not be getting my vote period. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. Unless someone, as you said, if someone came knocking on my door saying they want to represent me and they gave me a good reason, then I will vote for them because I really don't care about the political strikes. I actually more so care about you and what your policies are. Um, so uh, the one thing I do want to add is I guess kind of going back in time, I remember watching on one of your Facebook videos, um, about the, the blockades and it did seem at least for my person, like I watched it raw, the raw video of it. And it did seem like you were kind of starting the blockades. That's kind of the tone that was taken. Do you, would you, you know, understand why someone would feel like you're the one who started yeah. all this? I've gone back and, and watched it and I can see from, from the words that I chose, um, I can see why people would think that. And that's why since I've tried to, to tried to help people to understand. So I was contacted by many people um, after the premier's press release came out at two o'clock on the 22nd to say that they were going to shut down the highway. Mm. And I urged them to not do it at the border because I said, we've been trying to open the border. Please don't do it there. <laughs> and um, that's why they went to exit seven. Yeah. And after some consideration, I decided to go and join them. So, you know, my message was pretty strong. I was angry and it was pointed directly to Premier Rankin and, but on behalf of the people that I represent. And, you know, since then, he won't even say my name. He was at a press conference and a reporter asked him and he called me that person. And I'm going to tell you, a lot of women, at least up here, they are mad at him. They're like, mm. like, you can't even, he would, he was so disrespectful. And, and yeah. my feeling is I'm just representing the people here. So when you disrespect me, you're, you're disrespecting the people I represent. Yeah. 
right. it's a whole community of people. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that makes. I mean, I, I do definitely see where you're coming from, and it makes a lot of sense. And you know, I think right now, even in politics in general in Canada, um, any woman who isn't a part of the Liberal Party um, gets roasted hard, and we see that with Jody Wilson-Raybould as well right now. Obviously, she took step took a step oh, away yeah. from federal mm-hmm. politics for that reason specifically. Um, yeah. You know, the, it's not okay what's happening. Um, I think we need to, as a people, need to understand nuance. And stop being so tribalistic and really mm-hmm. accept each other for our differences, for what they are, but also have decent conversations and not just write people off because they make us a tad bit uncomfortable. But with that, mm-hmm. I'll leave it to Dalton. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I absolutely agree. I think um, how fast the entire internet with everyone, it, politics or social media or sports players is cancel culture and it's without even giving a person it, it, it seems like the court of public opinion has become stronger than that of the law and that absolutely blows my mind and i just don't know how we've got to this place and how we mm-hmm. can veer away from that and give people the right to defend themselves without being called every name in the book or being sent death threats or threats on their family and all these i just don't get it and so and just you use some interesting words there, Dalton. I also want, I'll give you a chance to clarify. What do you mean by, you know, um, they deserve the right to defend themselves? I mean, they, they, they deserve the right to, I would say, get on a public platform okay. or, um, yeah, not like a gun. Okay, so I want to yeah. clarify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, like verbally defend themselves. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. yeah. awesome. Um, um, without being cut off and told that they're, you know, a, a bigot or that they're a racist which seems to be thrown around so loosely and gently these days that there's no real meaning to the word um yeah i just don't know how we we pivot back to something a little more inclusive mm-hmm. so last question i, I want to hit on at least with this with this specific topic is you were demanded of for an apology and you said no um, I'm curious personally, how did those, how did that actual interaction go when those conver- that conversation happened, um, when you were asked to, to make an apology? So initially I was asked to clarify a few things like that. I was not an, I actually don't like using the word anti-vaxxer because it kind of sounds disrespectful because everyone does have the right to choose, but I was asked to clarify a few things and then um, to say I feel badly what happened on Wednesday, which I had no problem doing. But when it came right down to it, um, the expectation was that I was to sign or verbally state that I was responsible for the blockade on Wednesday at the Nova Scotia and Brunswick border, which I was not and uh, was not willing to, to, um, to sign something simply to make someone else happy. And really, that's been a reflection of my experience in politics the last four years. It's, it's uh, not been, you know, if you truly want to represent your people, you're often in conflict with, with the leader of a party. And it shouldn't be that way. I just want to make one comment in relation to something you said earlier, Josh, and that is, you know, in this current culture and politics, can people truly represent their people if they're, if they're part of a political party? I think yes, under the right leadership. And, you know, should we be looking at different models? Um, Nunavut has all independent MLAs, the only place in Canada 
Wow. You know, would that produce better political results? Because um, we either need to go to a model like that, in my opinion, or we need to somehow cultivate uh, leaders, political leaders, party, political party leaders that allow MLAs to elected officials to truly represent the people that elected them. Because that's, I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, and I think you make But it, anyway, sorry. about the apology, that's basically, it came down to, you know, I wasn't willing to, um, I wasn't willing to give up my own integrity Absolutely. to sign something that, that was not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, um, I think you bring up a good point because we have kind of that system on a municipal level, um, you know, which I think is actually very positive. Um, I love my counselor. I think he's done a fantastic mm -hmm. job for my area. Um, yeah, they manage to get things done quite frequently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I do think, I, that's actually one of my favorite parts when it comes around to those elections, is that there's no party affiliation. Um, you're able to look at them for their policies, what they're trying to do, and I it just takes away a barrier from, from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, those are some great points. Uh, so that's uh, that's all we got for you. But we really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and 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 voicing uh, kind of your perspective of what's happened. And we know that at times when the media can get involved, they can get carried away with specific narratives. And yeah, uh, we wanted to kind of hear your perspective on those various narratives and uh, what may have been truth, may have been yeah. myth, and may have been a mix of the both. And um, we appreciate you coming on and uh, learning about a person who's so much more than one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate the opportunity. And I think if I could send one last message, it's that each person has a voice and matters and they should be respected and, and heard. And maybe there's somebody listening out there that, that, um, you know, wants to put their name on a ballot. Don't be discouraged. I'd rather, I'd rather, I would rather do what I think is right and be removed from a party, but know that I did what was right for the people than, um, than to not. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenging career. Uh, I mean, my first six months, I was threatened. Somebody was going to kill me. And um, it, it's a, it attracts a lot of conflict and a lot of polarizing opinions and anger and frustration so but if you believe in in what you're doing and you believe that things can be done better and you can believe you believe that in the greater good um you know the easiest thing for me to do would have been just to walk away right yeah but if every person that believes that government should be based on foundations of truth and justice and honesty walks away what are we left with? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I just say, you know, people that are listening, stand up for what you think is right. You know, fight for what you, you believe your truth and justice is for you and your family and the people that you love and think we'll all be better off if we, we do that and respect one another through it. For sure. Absolutely. I think those last words those are were good departing words. Yeah. Those are specifically yeah. great departing words. Really yeah. appreciate your time, Elizabeth. And it really does mean the world. They took the time out and uh, we uh, wish you luck as you, uh, pursue this uh, endeavor as an yeah, independent your new journey and uh, good luck thank you both thank you thank you dude 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 <laughs> dude that was good that was a great episode we, it yep. was um almost shocking to hear 
Yeah. Uh, from the person herself. That yeah. Went down. Exactly. Especially when it comes to politics, I definitely anticipated be um, it being a, even a tad bit more antagonistic. Totally. Loki was prepared for a fight. Yeah, you. Were, I know you were. I saw the notes you made on. Yeah, that I was like, "Well, it's a politician." Yeah, we we got we you know we got to hold our you politicians know. to a high standard. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, but it, uh, everything we had, there was a solid answer to. Yeah, I didn't feel swindled. No, um, you know, and we'll leave that to you to kind of make your own decisions and what you come to on it. We don't want to sway, you know, yep. anything you say. Yep. That's the goal of a podcast and a goal of this type of platform is we want just to present information to you and you can make your own decision. Form those opinions. And form your own opinion of what it is. And if your opinion is Josh and Dalton, you suck, eh, so be it. Yeah, tell so, us in the comments. Yeah. Let so, me know. But just make sure you share it first. Absolutely. Exactly. On your socials. Yeah, precisely. So, whatever you're doing, whether you be sitting at a highway blockade. Oh, man. Oh, I don't know. That was mine. You've never done this to me before. Or waiting for some lobster. Dang. Or some vaccines. Or waiting for your blood work to come in. Whatever it is. Wherever you are. We love you. We're out. Peace.